First reading this morning is taken from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to the end. This is in fact our second reading for today. Our first reading is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And our second reading from Proverbs chapter 8. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning, when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds and clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in the human race. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway, for those who find me, find life and receive favour from the Lord. But those who fail to find me, harm themselves. All who hate me, love death. This is the word of the Lord.
Thanks, Hector. Good morning, everyone, and um, welcome. Lovely to see you all. My name is Mary Lewis Beard, and I'm a member of the congregation. If you are able to call up Bible passages on your phone or you have a Bible with you, um, do turn to Proverbs chapter 8, and I'll be jumping around a little bit this morning. So if you are able to be dexterous with your searching for passages, I think it would help. I was really thrilled this week to discover Proverbs chapter 8 um, that Hector just read out, um, because that bit gives such a picture of what the life of God is like. It gives us a little glimpse of what goes on within this kind of technical concept we call the Trinity. Before anything was created, we are told, Father, Son, and Spirit quite simply had one another's company. They were in company. Verse 27, I was there when the Lord set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon, when he established the clouds above. I was there. Okay, there's a question mark over who's speaking here, whether it's God the Son or God the Spirit. But the important thing we learn is that God was in relationship before the beginning of the world. And as we read these incredible words, we can sense the love and the ease that is within the relationship of God and the incredible power that is within it, forming oceans and mountains and marking out the foundations of the earth this free and boundless creativity that brought the world into being. And I especially love verses 30 and 31, which describes that as creation was going on, I was constantly at the Lord's side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in the human race. Love that picture of the joy of God the joy that witnessed human beings coming into being, being made, and look at that last bit, the joy that rejoices over us, that delights in us. And I would really love for us to get caught up in that picture of the loving and joyful companionship of God pouring out over us as we come to this passage, this familiar fruit of the spirit passage in Galatians 5. I don't know if you feel this, but whenever I see Paul drawing up a list, whether it's this Fruit of the Spirit list or the 1 Corinthians 13 love list, and he has all of these other lists, I get a bit of a sinking feeling. I don't know whether you do. And I think why I get a sinking feeling is, firstly, I assume that Paul's lists have something to do with godly character. And so my default reaction is, oh, self-analysis, not doing great. Secondly, I assume that Paul's lists have something to do with sanctification, this process by which we're gradually becoming more like Jesus. We are told in numerous places, including here, that sanctification is of the Spirit, that it's something that the Spirit does. But if the Spirit is working, why do I battle the same failures of character day after day? And if it's the Spirit's work, then what part am I supposed to be playing in this process? I find these thoughts can get very slippery in my head, and I'm tempted to think it's all a mystery. It's very complicated. I would need a lot of time to think through the theology. I don't have that time, so I'm just going to leave it and carry on just trying to do my best. I'm going to encourage us, let's encourage one another not to be weighed down 
by such thoughts, such shackles this morning, because Paul doesn't want us to be. Paul's intention is the complete opposite. In verse 13 of Galatians 5, before he even gives us the list, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And if we scan the rest of Galatians, we see that Paul is absolutely desperate that the Galatians don't return to a life in shackles, whether those shackles are manufactured regulations or whether those shackles are our own desires to do whatever we want. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. I just want to take a moment to ask the Lord to settle that thought in our hearts. Lord, thank you for the freedom that you call us to. And Lord, you know we prize freedom. You know we talk about freedom a lot. But you also know, Lord, that we are not great at living in freedom. We don't really know what to do with our freedom. Lord, you see our fears. You see our doubts. You see the habits we get into. You see our weariness. Lord, I pray that you would come in your spirit and speak to us through these words this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are beginning this new series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we are going to, in the next few weeks, look at the different characteristics of the fruit. So if we scan um, verse 22 of chapter 5 of Galatians, we, there is the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this morning we're going to look at the first two. We're going to look at love and joy. And just a few kind of points of order, which we're probably all familiar with. The fruit of the Spirit is distinct from the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah, gifts like wisdom or healing or prophecy or speaking in tongues, and there are many others. Paul lists those gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says, for those gifts, the Spirit gives those gifts to each person just as he decides. But in contrast to that, Paul is talking here about the fruit, the singular fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. He's not making the point that some people will manifest joy and others will manifest peace and some in our personality are more prone to kindness and others are more prone to self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is just Paul's way of describing the different facets of Christian character, of which there is only one kind. There is only one type of Christian character because there is only one Jesus. Christian character is simply being like Jesus. Jesus had, Jesus has all of these characteristics, and if we are living by his spirit, it follows that we would have these characteristics as well. So love and joy, two facets of the fruit of the spirit, two facets of the character of Jesus, two facets, facets of what we are like if we choose to live by the spirit. And from the offset, we might have a friend, an inquiring friend who might say, hang on, even from my own very cursory knowledge of Jesus, I will concede that he was a man of love. And if you tell me a bit more about him, I, you'll probably convince me that he was a man of joy. But Jesus wasn't the only person around who had love and joy. And plenty of people exhibit love and joy. And they don't believe anything particularly about Jesus. So love and joy are not exclusively Christian characteristics. To which we might say, aha, but did you know that the kind of love Paul is talking about in Galatians 5 is agape love. And did you know that agape describes a distinctly Christian love, 
a love that is selfless and sacrificial and unconditional, that agape does not love someone because they are connected to us as family. Agape love isn't the love that we have towards a friend. Agape isn't the love we have when we're attracted to a lover. Agape is the love of God for all people, including those who are unlovely, who are unlovable, who don't have anything particularly about them to attract us, and who couldn't possibly give anything back in return. That's the kind of love Paul talks about. And it's the love that took Jesus to the cross. And my friends, did you know that Jesus died for us before we even knew him, when there was every chance that we would reject this love and that we would throw it back in his face? That's agape love. That's the love of Jesus we're talking about. And to this, our friend might say, okay, this agape love is rare. But even so, there are other examples of sacrificial love. There are people of all faiths and no faith who do things for other people without expecting anything in return. And we can never tell anyway 100% whether we're doing our good deeds selflessly or whether there's some hidden self-interest. But I reckon that there is genuine selflessness out there. And some people have even died for the sake of others. I mean, we think of 9-11, the firefighters who went into that building time after time. Not all of them had a reference to Jesus or the Holy Spirit, but they died for the sake of others. So it's rare, but it happens. What else can we say to this friend? What more have we got to say? Rather than continue this game of my love is better than your love, let's take a page out of the disciple Philip's playbook. What did Philip do when his friend Nathaniel was skeptical about this Jesus of Nazareth? Philip said to him, well, come and see. Rather than argue the point, let's extend the very same invitation to our friend. If you want to understand the love and joy of Jesus and why it's special, come and see. Come and see Jesus. How can our friend come and see Jesus today? Am I inviting him to come and see me so that he can see Jesus in my character? maybe to a certain extent, but a far superior and more effective way is to ask him to come and see us, to come and see us. If you want to understand the love and joy of Jesus, come and see us. And what would our friend see if he comes and sees us? In the Gospel of John, we're jumping to John now, we have an account of the time Jesus spent with his disciples the night before he died. And this account begins in John chapter 13. They were at supper and Jesus got up and he washed his disciples' feet, which was the task in the household reserved for the most junior, the lowliest servant or slave. And Jesus did this, John says, because he wanted to show them the full extent of his love. It's a familiar passage, but on reflection, I found it kind of odd. We'd understand if John had said Jesus showed them the full extent of his love by dying on the cross, but instead he says Jesus showed them the full extent of his love by washing their feet. Why? In verse 14, Jesus says to them, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example. 
that you do, you should do as I have done for you. Jesus is about to die. And yes, there will be a resurrection, but the disciples won't have his physical companionship anymore. This is the last opportunity he has to have a face-to-face extended conversation with all of them in one room. How is he setting them up for life without him? Let's think about this. In the natural course of things, if you're a fisherman with a family to feed and you've just pretty much checked out of that life or done it part-time for the past three years to join this guy, to join what you thought was probably going to be a political revolution, and then this guy, your leader, is disgraced and he's put to death and he's no longer here, what would you do? I would probably take a long time to get over the shock and the shame of the decision I had made. And then I'd say, okay, that was a mistake, back to the fishing, back to the old life. And Jesus says, don't do that, stick together, keep us going, keep us going. Don't go home, hunker down and lick your own wounds because we're not done, yeah, this isn't over. Stick together and just carry on loving one another in the way that I have loved you Do things for one another. Look out for one, do things, serve one another, even down to the most menial low-down task. Why? Because when you love with this kind of love, that is how people will see me and know me. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another, if. Because this kind of love is not inevitable. It requires effort. Agape requires effort. The theologian William Barclay, who wrote a commentary on this bit of Galatians, he says this, agape is not something that simply happens. It's something into which we have to will ourselves. In at least one of his aspects, agape is the ability and the power and the determination to love people we don't even like. But if we commit ourselves to this effort, the experience of the early church tells us that this works, this love works. Chapter two of Acts tells us the believers were devoted to one another, they were devoted to fellowship. And what happens? They enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. People on the outside saw the love on the inside and they wanted to come in. Jesus didn't leave them a guide, a treatise, on how to cultivate greatness of soul, how to cultivate love in your heart. He washed their feet and he said, now you do it. Be devoted, show up, and do it. And it can be something really simple. I was frankly struggling with preparing for this talk yesterday morning, and in comes an email. Dear Mary Lois, just to say we're praying for you as you prepare and speak at St. Michael's tomorrow. We are away, but we hope to listen to the recording later. Love from us both. And in the evening, a text comes in from another friend thinking of you for the sermon tomorrow. Very short words, huge encouragement for me. I was seen, I was loved. That's the love of Jesus by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
What else might this friend of ours see if he comes and sees us? Would he see our joy? Would he see the joy of Jesus? A bit later in that farewell conversation in John in chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, you will grieve when I'm gone, but then you will see me again, and then your grief will turn to joy. It's like a woman giving birth to a child, and she has pain because her time has come, but when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Jesus is very clear on this and many occasions that choosing to follow him is a sober choice because his life is hard and the way is narrow. But Jesus is also very clear that if we choose this life, this is the most joyful life, the most joyful life we can have. He was about to enter the most horrible suffering imaginable, but he kept his joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How? Because Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what it was for. Jesus knew the outcome. Jesus had absolute clarity of purpose. The mother in childbirth endures a very real pain with very real joy because she knows why she's going through it. And she knows the outcome will make her joy utterly complete. We can have a joy that endures pain and setback when we know what we're doing, when we have clarity of purpose. Think about it, when you look back on your life, were there periods when you had no idea what you were doing? You didn't know what you were doing and you lived without vision, without purpose. It's a joyless state, it's a really difficult, soul-destroying existence. Jesus knew exactly what he was about. And we know we should know what we're about because Jesus told us what we're about. He didn't say, go live your life, try your best to be like me. He said, go, go and make, go and make what? Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. And by the way, I'm sending you the Spirit and the Spirit's gonna help you. And because you have the Spirit, you're gonna do even greater things than you've seen me do. We're gonna do even greater things than we've seen Jesus do. What a promise, what a commission, what a life we are called to. We have joy, not through stoicism or because we as Christians somehow endure things better than other people. No, we have real joy because we have real purpose. We know we should know exactly what we're about. One last thought. It does take effort on our part to live this life. But the fact is, the love and joy of Jesus are already ours by right. The love and joy of Jesus are ours by right. That's not to say we don't have to take care about monitoring the state of our heart and be very, being very honest before the Lord about where our heart is at. I'm not saying we shouldn't engage in the discipline of self-examination before the Lord and repenting when we need to repent. But alongside these disciplines, and actually to encourage us in these disciplines, I think it's good to remember that the love and joy of Jesus, along with all the other characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, these things are already ours. They're conferred to us already. Do you remember, think back to a few months ago when we looked together at the, par at the parable of the prodigal son, and at the end of the story, the older brother refuses to join in the party. 
If ever there was love and joy to be had, surely it was at that party. And his father has to come out and remind him of what was his by right. My son, everything I have is yours. And so it is with us. Jesus has already made us co-heirs with him. We have the rights of sons and daughters in the house of God. The love and joy of Jesus are ours by right. But we can choose to stay away from the party. Yeah, we can choose to stay outside. It doesn't change our status as a child. The father is very careful to remind us of that. But staying away, frankly, makes life miserable. It's miserable for us and it kind of spoils everyone else's fun. So let's go back in. Not only are we very welcome, the truth is we were meant to be one of the welcoming party. You know, as I was writing this, I really felt very strongly that, you know, we choose this life, we choose, we come to the Lord, we become Christians. And then we wonder a lot about, well, what am I supposed to be doing with this Christian life? And it can feel vague and nebulous, and we're not quite sure what we're supposed to be doing with it. But it really struck me as I was preparing this that Jesus is actually quite specific. You know, Jesus calls us to this active love, join this active love within a fellowship of believers. And he says, you can have such a deep and profound joy if you take seriously this purpose I've given you of going and making new disciples, if you do that together, you're going to experience such deep, profound joy. He's really specific. But because this love and joy are of the Spirit and it doesn't come from our own selves, what Paul calls the flesh, it's, it doesn't come from our own nature, this love and joy comes from the Spirit, it takes a daily decision on our part to choose the Spirit. Maybe you have had a season of feeling listless and not quite sure where this Christian life is taking you. And so, well, because you're not sure, I'll just follow my own agenda and just get on with this plan because, well, this one here doesn't seem very clear. But you don't really feel alive. You don't really feel energized. And you know, trees can be alive without bearing fruit, can't they? And same with us, we can be alive without bearing fruit. But our Father really wants us to flourish. That's the first thing he ever said to us as a race. Be fruitful. And then, as then, back in Genesis, and now, he's created, he's already given us conditions in which we can be fruitful. Let's choose it. <laughs>